Hey, uh, if you uh, were here with us when worship started, uh, I mentioned that we're in a series called Christ's Journey to the Cross, and we are following Jesus in his footsteps from this morning, from the upper room where he sings a hymn with his best friends, and then he goes to the Mount of Olives. That's our destination for today. And it says at the top of our text in Matthew chapter 26, these words, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is a hill that's 100 feet above the old city of Jerusalem, which doesn't sound like a lot, especially when we live here in Colorado, where there are mountains thousands of feet taller than us. But imagine a 10-story building that overlooks a city. Now, right next to it, uh, here's a picture of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. You can kind of see how it's higher. This is a kind of a tourist destination today. And this is looking west toward Jerusalem. So the Mount of Olives is on the east side of the city. Uh, here's a look back from Jerusalem toward the Mount of Olives. And here's uh, just another picture. It's kind of more developed than we might have imagined it when we read Matthew chapter 26. Uh, maybe it kind of looks like this in your head. I'm sure there's a filter on this picture, but, you know, it was filled with trees, and these trees formed a garden. And fun fact, the kind of trees that covered the Mount of Olives were, anybody have a guess? Olive trees. Very good, right? And this is the place that Jesus is heading as he leaves the upper room with his best friends and a song in his heart. I find this very interesting for a number of reasons. What could have Jesus been singing? Has that ever occurred to you? We don't really picture any place in the Gospels. There's no other description of Jesus singing out loud. Perhaps this was uh, a number of psalms that were a part of the Passover liturgy that would be sung before or after. Uh, fun fact for you, Bible trivia, uh, Psalms 113 through 118, and Jesus would have known these songs from a boy taught by his mother Mary. Perhaps this is what Jesus was singing. I was talking with Kellen right before worship began, and I was wondering, we were just kind of wondering out loud, what part did Jesus sing? Was he a bass? Was he a tenor? Not sure, but we agreed he probably had perfect pitch. Uh, he's perfect. It's a music joke that's not very funny if you're not a music person. What is Jesus singing? But for that matter, Why? Why is Jesus singing? Because he's on his way to the darkest night of his life. Within a day, he'll be dead, and he knows that. I mean, if you knew that today would be the most difficult day in your life, if you knew that from the moment that you woke up, would you be singing in the shower? But Jesus here is singing knowing full well what's ahead of him. I think there are at least two things that Jesus knows in his head as he sings out loud. He's working the truth down into his heart. 
And that's what we're going to do in just a few moments because that's very different than the way our culture tells us to experience truth. Our culture says, start with your heart, go inside, and then go outside and express it to the people around you. So this is why any show that you binge on Netflix, this is the narrative. Uh, This is why Walter White goes inside to discover his inner villain. And this is why Ariel in The Little Mermaid goes inside and realizes that she wants to be someone very different than the person who she is created to be. And she has so much trouble when she's not the person that she is, the per- who God created her to be, or she's written and designed to be in the story. It's very different than the way the scriptures say truth comes. It comes from the outside and comes to the inside. It comes from our head and works down into our heart. And we're going to talk about the two things Jesus knows in his head as he sings on his way from the upper room to the Mount Olives, the pain and sorrow first and the promise and the joy second, pain and promise. The two things that he knows in his head that he's working down into his heart. That's what we'll do over the next few minutes. And then before we close, we're going to pass, uh, pull over and talk about a couple of practices that we can do today that we can add to our life, habits that we can form, that God can use to do the very same thing that Jesus is doing, to work the truth from our head into our hearts. All right, that's our plan over the next few minutes. You with me? Thank you for the nods. I know you don't have a choice, but let's do it together. Anyway, all right. Uh, So, uh, what does Jesus know? The first thing that he knows certainly is the pain that is ahead. I've said a moment ago, this is the darkest night of his life. He's more than having a dark night of the soul that's coming and going, some passing thing, when he's on his knees in a few minutes in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and there are sweats of blood dropping from his head. We're going to talk more about that next week as we're on this journey with Jesus, but but, but imagine, in a matter of moments, he'll be handed over to the Roman guards and the chief priests and teachers of the law that are facilitating his address. And he will be betrayed by one of his dearest friends and abandoned by all of them, despite the fact that they're all saying, despite Jesus' prediction in our gospel reading, that, that they won't leave him, they will all leave him. Despite their earnest pleas. He'll be beaten within an inch of his life. Pain. Tortured. He will breathe his last breath upon the cross. This is, to some degree, what we experience. Maybe you've got a little kid and you go to the doctor and it's time for another round of vaccines. Uh, maybe if you go to the dentist as an adult and you know that uh, you got to have a root canal and there's, you know, you won't feel it because you'll those Novocaine, but there's the shot to give you the Novocaine in the first place and you know that shot is going into your gum. I mean, it's that kind of trepidation and fear, but of course, many, many, many times worse. He knows. He knows what is ahead, the pain that is before him and the sorrow he will Endure, and yet he is singing. Perhaps the reason why he's singing, knowing that the pain lies before him, is going to be so intense that it will take his life. Perhaps he's singing because he's just simply going through the motions. And the disciples, they're into it, they're feeling it. This is, but maybe for him, this just feels like just something he's done not just 33 years on earth before, but a song that he's heard for thousands and thousands of years, and this is one more time to hear it. 
You know, singing in church feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? A song we've heard before, and the people around me seem to be more into it than I am, and I maybe don't want to sing too loud because I'm not really a singer, and, you know, if, if other people heard my voice, I can't really carry a tune in, the buck, in a bucket if I had to. Sometimes I know feeling like that when you come to church and we're asked to sing is sort of like that. Going through the motions. Is that what Jesus is up to? With the pain that he knows is before him, perhaps. But don't forget also, this is not simply what he knows in his head about the pain that is before him, but the promise, the joy that is before him. That's the second thing that he knows. Because over and over in Matthew's gospel, we have a number of passion predictions where Jesus pulls over with his best friends and he says, by the way, I want you to know, don't be surprised that the Son of Man, that I will be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and I will be killed. But the passion predictions of Jesus aren't simply predictions about his suffering. If you remember, they're predictions about his resurrection. So it says in Matthew chapter 26, a couple verses later, easy just to jump over. Jesus says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And this is so important because Jesus is not only predicting his resurrection to his best friends and saying that uh, not only will I be raised, but he's saying something very important to them despite the fact that he's gonna say right out of his mouth the next words or you're gonna abandon me. What he's already saying to them is a word of pardon, a word of acceptance to say, despite the fact that you will abandon me, I'm going ahead of you into Galilee, parenthetically what he's saying is, and we will be together. Despite the fact that you wander away from me. He's not just simply saying that to his disciples back then, he's saying that to you and to me today, despite the fact that we wander away from him. This is a word of pardon for the disciples and for you and for me. He's saying, I've gone ahead of you. I'm predicting my passion, my suffering, and my death, but I'm predicting my resurrection. And Jesus knows this. He knows that his resurrection is ahead, but he also knows that this won't be the last time that he's standing in this very spot. That six weeks later, after he's uh, on the Mount of Olives with his friends, he'll be here again. This will be the location from which he ascends into heaven. It's as if he's saying to his disciples as he sings with them, this place I will rule and reign from now and till all eternity. This will be the place from which he will rise into heaven and on that day from which he will return once again his enemies that once slayed him on the cross will be laid at his feet. Death and disease and pain and suffering and loneliness and masks and everything that we experience today will be done away with forever. And so perhaps the song that Jesus sings as he's on his way from the upper room to the Mount of Olives is not simply a song of sadness as he knows the pain that is before him. Full aware of the promise that is before him, his resurrection and his ascension. It's a song of victory. It's a song saying to his enemies that will once lay at his feet, I have already conquered the grave and I will return. And I am the true champion here as if the victory has already been accomplished. He knows that this is ahead. Perhaps it is a song not simply of sadness and defeat, but one of victory as the king over all of creation of sin and death and the devil who rules and reigns even now and will return. The text doesn't tell us this, but we know that Jesus would have known these things and as he sings, 
from the upper room to the Mount of Olives, I can only imagine that he's working the truth of both the reality of the pain in one hand and the promise in the other. He's working the truth from his head, what he knows, to his heart. And this is what we need to do too. Because this is not the way we experience truth, or at least our culture tells us today. It's not from outside to inside. Our culture says, no, it's from inside to outside. And so I want to submit to you, as we kind of close here, a number of practices, habits to form. Chances are you're already doing one, perhaps more of these. They're probably to some degree natural to you, but I want to submit to you to them that they are more than just empty routines or religious rituals for the spiritual elite. The things we're going to explore together are ways to bring the truth from your head to your heart. And let's start with singing. We've already done that a number of times in this worship service. It's probably you don't, Maybe you don't sing very much in other parts of your life, but when you come into a room like this, or you're sitting at home, you're invited to join us, and if we sing together, let's start with singing. Because I can remember the first time I sang in this room. It's 2014, end of the month of May. We were sitting uh, next to that post right over there. Uh, my wife Jackie's on my Right, and she's holding our uh, less than one-year-old son, Adam, seven years ago. It's a late service, just like this, about this time of the morning, and we were singing a song by Matt Maurer called, I, Lord, I Need You. And the chorus of that song goes like this, Lord, I need you. I, oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh, how I need you. And we were singing that song, and I looked over at Jackie, and the expression on her face was the same at mine. There were tears running down our cheeks because we were in the middle on that day of singing that song and being here in this room, deciding if God was calling us to this place and to what he was up to in the movement that was already at work, and that would mean for us leaving behind or Jackie's family and the ministry that I was a part of for a number of years already. And we needed to sing. We needed to sing these very words, Lord, I need you. And every time I sing that song or I hear it out loud, I think of that moment when I was sitting right over there. I was standing right here a week ago last Friday. And I was with a family leading a funeral for a man who died at 31. And the final years of his life were filled with tragedy. And we sang together a week ago last Friday, Amazing Grace. We sing that at a lot of funerals here. But at this funeral, we sang the contemporary version that has this chorus. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And we needed to sing that. Because the final years in Jake's life were filled with tragedy and he died in a tragic way. We needed to sing that because Jake was now free from the things that once held him down. We needed to sing. We need to sing. Whether you can carry a tune in a bucket or not, we need to sing. We're going to do that right after the sermon is done in a few moments. We're going to stand up and we're going to sing out loud 
Whether you like the sound of your voice or not, Jesus loves the sound of your voice, whether you can sing or not. We need to sing. That's the first thing. Let's move quickly through the next couple. The next one is that we need to talk. We need people in our life to talk to us, to speak the truth into our life, to tell us the things not just that we want to hear about ourselves, but the things that we need to hear about ourselves. Let me ask you, do you have someone in your life who loves you enough to tell you the truth about you? Uh, earlier this morning, I was preaching, I asked that question kind of rhetorically, and there was a couple sitting right in front of me, and I saw the wife go like this to her husband. <laughs> Do you have somebody like that? Maybe you don't. And maybe that's because it's the season of life that you're in. Or maybe perhaps it's because you're pretty good at hiding behind a wall and you have trouble doing what's hard for me to do often, to let people in. And to share not only the things that bring you joy, but to share about yourself the things that are hard. We need to talk. We need Christian counselors. And we've got one right here as part of our church and our ministry, Pastor Warner Bowes. Who is it for you that can speak the truth to you about you, who tells you not just the things that you want to hear, but the things that you need to hear? I would submit that song is a gift from God to work the truth from our heart, and that people that God gives us are his gifts to work the truth from our head to our heart. Let's talk about prayer, because we have a beautiful model of this kind of rhythm in Psalm 42. The psalm opens like this. It begins as a prayer. The psalmist Uh, looks to God and says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Uh, In this image, of course, we are like the deer. This is talking about a longing, not necessarily panting. You're probably not a deer and you probably don't pant too often, but he's describing a longing for God and for his presence. And then the direction shifts. A couple verses later, the psalmist looks at himself. He talks to his own heart and he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. He's talking to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He starts with a prayer, then he talks to his heart, and then it goes, here's a word of truth that he knows in his head. But by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. He knows that this is true. And this next line is great. And at night, his song is with me. Oh, a prayer to the God of my life. I know this is true, therefore he turns back to his soul. He moves from head to heart, and here's how the psalm lands. Here's how it closes. So then, wait, so why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? This is more than just a refrain. He's turning back to his own heart, and he says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see how this is a prayer that he talks about what he knows to be true, but yet he works what he knows to to be true down into his heart. And I would submit to you today as well that prayer is a gift from God to move, not just to, to bear all our burdens on him and to lament, but it's a prayer to take in what we know is true and to work it out. One more Let's talk about the role of the scriptures. Now, I'll close uh, with this. My wife, uh, Jackie, and I were reading through 
uh, the Bible together this year. Not something we've ever done before. We're in the book of Exodus. It's early in the year. And uh, just uh, recently, uh, I had a bunch of days that I needed to catch up on. I was reading through a bunch of verses that some of them I had read before. Uh, Psalm, or Exodus 33, 14 says this, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Hold that thought. A couple of days before that, uh, our son Jude is three years old. And this is a big deal, because Jude now has a big boy bed. He's out of his crib. And Jude has a big boy bed, but that also means that Jude can get out of his big boy bed. He's not a kid who sits very still. And so uh, he gets out at night sometimes, but also very early in the morning before I would like to wake up, he gets out of bed. And a couple mornings ago, I hear the door to our bedroom open and I hear the little feet pitter-patter, pitter-patter, you know, as he runs over, he climbs in bed and he gets in bed next to me. And uh, you know like how when you're laying on your side, uh, you have got like one pillow that's, or one eye that's closed because your eyes smashed into the pillow and your other eyes above the pillow. Jude is doing that with me and I have my eyes closed but I'm opening them just like briefly enough to check and see if he's still there and then closing them again. And for some magical reason, he, though he's a pretty active kid, is like sitting still and he is so close to me that we are breathing the same carbon dioxide. <laughs> And this goes on for like 15 minutes. Near and close. Father and son. At rest together. So fast forward a couple of days. I'm reading these words, Exodus chapter 33. And at first glance I heard them, as a son of God the Father, him saying them to me, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And of course, that's more than sleep. Physical energy, that's his shalom that comes with his presence, his peace that comes with his presence for body and heart and mind and soul, his rest. And when I read that on that day, at first glance, it sounded like son hearing those words from God to me as my father, but, but something happened. I remembered back a couple of days to the moment when as a father, I was in the presence of my son. And we were at rest together, and I had a whole new way to experience these words. And so in the last week or so since I read that and I made that connection, I've said this to me, myself, a number of times. When I've been anxious and when I've felt guilty and when I haven't felt like the best version of myself, I've simply said that to me as the Father has said it to me, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. What's happening there? I'm doing much more than just remembering a moment, an emotional experience. I'm taking the truth, God's word and promise that I know in his head, that I've read on the page a bunch of times before and working it down into my heart. And I have a whole new way to experience that. Now, I want to just say one more thing about this moment. I didn't make that connection because I'm super spiritual or I'm a pastor or anything like that. 
If I did, I would have noticed it in the moment. But I didn't make the connection until days later when I opened the scriptures. You see that you have the very same thing that I have. For that matter, you're not any different than I am. You have the very same thing that I have. You have the scriptures that are more than just words of history and words about rules and regulations. Reading them is more than just a ritual for the spiritual elite. No, it is a way. It is God's gift to work his truth from your head to your heart. Let me ask you, which one of these four would you like to add to your practice today? Because we need to sing. It's God's gift. And we need people in our life. They're God's gift to us. And we need to pray. It's God's gift. We have direct access to his throne of grace. And we need to read his word and take holy communion and sing out loud about the one who came, who knew the pain that was before him and knew the promise that lies before him. And in the midst of our pain, he's given us a promise. And in every moment in between that he is with us, that he was crucified and risen and rules and reigns for all eternity. And he has come and will come again. Amen.